Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I'm a divorce valuation expert in St. Louis, Missouri. I have the pleasure of discussing business valuations from a divorce attorney's perspective with my guest, Miles Mason, who is a divorce lawyer in Memphis, Tennessee, also servicing Nashville and I'm sure other parts of Tennessee. Welcome, Miles. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me, Melissa. Well, and Miles is already kind of a YouTube star and does a bunch of videos about valuations. But we're going to look at valuations really from an attorney's perspective, and then I can provide some information from the expert's perspective. But let's get right into it. What do you see as the reason for a business valuation in a divorce purpose or why you would even need something like this? Like, how do you see it in from an attorney's eyes? Well, let's start off with the mechanics, right? What is a divorce? A divorce, we're going to divide property, okay? We're going to deal with custody, child support, alimony, attorney's fees, Okay, we're dividing the the parties in a legal relationship and making them single. Now, as far as dividing marital property, there as part of that process, there's four things we have to do. We got to identify what's marital. We have to classify uh, the assets as either marital or separate. And in uh, community property states, it's community property, non-community property. Same function in most situations, okay? We had to value the asset to divide it, all right? Now, there are a few exceptions to that, but when we're talking about a business, yeah, one party's going to have to buy out the other if it's marital property. And then what percentage of the property goes to each party. What part of the uh, marital estate goes each way? And it's not always 50-50. Even if the states say it's equal, it's not. So once we have a business ownership interest, whether it be intellectual property, law firm, medical practice, uh, widget manufacturer, it doesn't matter. There's a value. Okay, Some are more than others. And if you're talking about a, a major enterprise, it could be the ownership interest could be north of $100 million. If it's a small business, uh, it may have no value because nobody would want to buy it. So as part of the divorce itself, it's a mechanical process that must be taken unless the divorce lawyer wants to be sued for malpractice. Well, and I think that that's, an interesting piece of it, because if you have some um, stock, if you own some stock and you get a statement and the statement says, as of this date, it's worth $20,000, then that's pretty easy. Somebody can just look at that statement and they can say, okay, it's worth $20,000. Now the business or even other sort of tangible assets you usually have to get an expert involved. And a lot of times, this is what I've told um, other clients too, is that I'm coming in to help the attorney understand the value of a business so that they can recommend some sort of settlement or to go to trial to their client. 
But without that piece of information, and you know, one person says it's worth a million, one person says it's worth 500,000, the attorney just can't say, well, we'll go with 750. Sounds good. Because that gets you into like a kind of a malpractice type of situation, right? Right. Because let's let's take your example of 750. It is not unusual for a business owner to have non-operating assets. Now, it's a technical term for the non-business valuation uh, folks out there. There's assets owned by the business that are not really business assets, especially in smaller, closely held businesses. So it could be a timeshare, could be a uh, condo down at the beach, could be anything. And so you've got to be careful and do the due diligence and do what your business valuation expert or forensic accountant says to do if you want a fair, just, and reasonable result. Well, and I think that uh, another thing that you touched on, which we can talk about, is trying to discuss how are the business assets actually divided in divorce? Because traditionally, people are like, okay, well, we have um, you know, a piece of land. Okay. Can we just split the farmland in half and one person takes one and one person takes the other? Well, with a business asset, you can't necessarily divide that asset in half and each take half. So how do you see business assets divided in divorce? All right. Great question. What I see is a fundamental misunderstanding of what business valuation is and the purpose of it by most divorce lawyers, especially those that we oppose. All right. So let's take it from the business owner's perspective. What does the business owner need after the divorce? Control. They need to still own it, still control it, and preferably not have their non-business owner spouse sitting and saying, I want to share the profits. Now it's possible, especially, and I've been involved with, a, as I'm sure you have, a bunch of businesses where the husband and wife work together and they still keep the business and, and they owed it after Somehow the Somehow they make it work, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, money, money talks, mm-hmm. right? So that's what the business owner needs. Now, the non-business owner should want one very simple thing, cash, okay? So in a settlement, the goal should be for each party to have a essentially a buyout, okay? Now, but the business owner may not always have enough cash, or perceive that the amount of cash that it's going to take is unfundable. And to some extent, maybe that's true. They may need to go find, uh, go have their, take their banker on a nice vacation, (laughs) whatever it takes to get access to a credit facility to pay cash. And the non-business owner wants more cash now rather than cash over time. So if either party decides to step on the other and not go down the path of a simple buyout for cash, there could be all kinds of problems because then they put the solution in the hands of a judge. 
which the judge may have an English major or a political science major and doesn't understand that they, there needs to be enough cash to do the buyout, but not so much cash that the business owner uh, can't operate because every business needs some capital. And there's two forms of capital that a business can use, debt or equity. Okay, And equity is a fancy word for cash infusion. Uh, so long way around the barn of saying that first job of the divorce lawyer is to explain the purpose of the business valuation. Now, the subtle part is there are times that it might be advantageous for the non-business owner to take the 750 offer, even though the business may arguably be worth more on paper. Okay. Now, why would a non-business owner spouse want less money? Well, you don't want to kill the goose. All right. You got alimony, child support coming in on the other side. So there are times that it may make sense to not take a hundred cents on the dollar for that claim. Now, the other thing is once we come up with 750, even if it's a you use three different methods and you all come up with all the arrows point at seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Well, again. The fundamental misunderstanding, most divorce lawyers, if you ask them, if both business valuation experts say that in this, both parties, if you ask them, you strap them to a chair, duct tape them, and then force some uh, margaritas down them and say, what's the business worth when both experts have said it's $750,000? Most divorce lawyers will tell you the business is worth $750,000. It's not. It's a calculation. It's an estimation based on professional judgment. There may be a buyer out there. And one of the things I think uh, most, most lawyers don't understand is that all business valuation theory tries to remove the value to a strategic purchaser, which is stupid, okay? And the reason why you it's done that way is because there's no way to know. I mean, you're talking to, you know, a, a potentially a crazy figure. So who's the most likely purchaser of a business? A strategic purchaser. And this may be a good opportunity for you, Melissa, to teach me a little bit more about what, uh, how that goes into your thinking, but I've got to explain to my client, if I'm representing the non-business owner, we don't get crazy money in the event Disney's going to go in here and just buy the business up lock, stock and barrel. You don't. Right. But it's not, the business isn't worth seven fifty. And that's where you have to get into the subtleties. And it's really hard to explain. And most business, all right, the other concept at play here is that in divorce, what judges and courts need is a number, which to the CPAs and the business valuation experts make no sense because they want to give a range. They want to they say, well, it's 
750,000-ish, which I completely get. You know, I'm a CPA and a lawyer too, so I completely understand that. And the system needs a number for the divorce to be decided in a courtroom. And it needs to have a number in terms of what assets are exchanged for the non-business owner. Mm-hmm. But the number is make-believe, okay? It's make-believe because we have no other option. Not that there's a better solution out there. It's just we don't have an option and we have to have a number, all right? And so I think divorce lawyers don't understand that concept. And it is very rare. And I've, you and I have both attended hundreds of seminars from AICPA and, and other legal organizations. And very rarely does anybody ever talk about explaining strategic purchasers to divorce lawyers and how that concept has to be taken out. And also I'll throw in there for the uh, business valuation experts who I've already deposed that may be watching. Yeah, most of the business valuation experts I have deposed or cross-examined in the courtroom cannot explain strategic purchasers don't get included in the valuation, but they always come up with, if they're representing the non-business owner, they're always coming up with and want to say, yeah, but what if Disney comes along? But you can't by definition. Mm -hmm. Liz, what do you think about that? Well, I think that what you're getting into is a concept that people will start to hear if they go down this, which is what is the standard of value? Okay. And those terms just mean normal, you know, are just normal words if you're outside of this. But the standard of value is really predicted and determined by each state. So it could be different in Missouri, Illinois, to Tennessee, to continue to Georgia, any of those states. So the standard of value in the state of Missouri is fair market value. And fair market value is basically a concept of a hypothetical willing buyer and a hypothetical willing seller, not the business owner that currently owns it and not a strategic partner. So you have fair market value. You could have what you're talking about, which is investment value or strategic value. And then in some states, you also have this concept of value to the holder. And so I hold the business and there is value because I am part of it. Now, that gets lost somewhere in the nuances of valuation, but fair market value, hypothetical willing buyer, willing seller means somebody off the street comes in to purchase this company, which means I'm not, you know, like if I'm going to buy a landscaping company, which means I don't know anything about the landscaping business. I don't even know how to cut a grass, right? I don't know how to do any of that, but I come in and I look at what's the cash flow, what are the assets? How can I make money on this? And usually how can I make money because it just operates as it should, right? And then the one of the things though that you talked about that I think is interesting is the concept of an a, a judge then trying to understand this value. Um And there's always going to be logic that comes in. And so a lot of times we go in there as experts and we say, okay, we've developed all of this valuation 
we've abided by the valuation theory. We've developed a range of value. Usually I pick one number and, and, but there could still be a range around that. But then traditionally the judge goes, okay, so this is a landscaper and it's one guy and it's worth $5 million. That logically doesn't quite make sense to them. And so now you have to bridge the gap of does this logically even make sense? And I think that some valuation people and even some attorneys are just like, listen, we want a high number. We are, we want a low number and we don't care what it is, but if it doesn't pass that logic piece of it and you can't describe what is the difference between these two, you're going to be lost with the judge. And then if you've given a range, you've also given the judge the capability to decide where they want to be in that range, if they want to be in that range. And you could have them go a little rogue, which I've seen, you know, judges do. So, so that kind of touches on some of the standard of value. There's premise of, you know, like all of these terms, but it really depends on the state. In in Tennessee, are you seeing fair market value? Are you seeing value to the holder? Right. Tennessee uh, law often blazes no trail. So our standard has not been defined other than in the statute. Okay. So what we have, my favorite answer to the question is from a wonderful uh, forensic accountant here in here in Memphis named Rob Vance. His answer to that, I like. It's fair market value as adjusted by Tennessee case law. Okay, so we're going to get some parameters for law firms. We're going to have parameters for dental practice. We're going to have parental, you know, for the more common, especially when you get into goodwill issues, which I'm hoping we don't do in this podcast. Uh, but Again, in your core business valuation manuals, there's this big exception that said don't include strategic purchasers that I think in every manual I've ever read, I always go just straight to it because I think it's a fascinating concept that Tennessee law hasn't addressed, many other states haven't addressed, but is in the core body of knowledge and theory behind business valuation. So the other thing in, uh, Melissa, what I wanted to ask you is, have you been in a battle, and I hope you haven't, in court over standard of value? Um, I don't know if it's totally a battle over, you know, Missouri's a little bit more clear Um, and so I don't think there's always a battle. The battle is that we're not using those terms, right? So we're not actually arguing over the standard of value, but we are definitely arguing over that there is value. And and that's why we call it kind of value to the holder, that there is value of the income coming into me and me operating the business. Um, but there's also, but you know, we pull market comps and we use market comps that realistically, if you want to get right down to it, you may or may not know if that was a strategic purchase. Right. 
So you're presenting a lot of financial information of companies who have sold other companies. And in some cases, you know, like franchises, franchises can be bought and sold by non-strategic partners all the time, right? Because you could just run, you could, you know, you can figure out and learn how to run a McDonald's. You can go to McDonald's U, right? Or mm -hmm. Chick-fil-A or any of those. And you can kind of just be a normal person, have some money, invest in a franchise. But when you go into some of these other worlds, you know, like if you're going to buy a, an architecture firm, if you're going to buy a, you know, something that's very specific, you probably need to have some knowledge about that industry to be able to be successful in it. And that's the difficulty is separating, which you don't want to talk about, but separating that person from the company. And what does that mean? You know, does your state or anybody's state, I think those are the questions that you have to understand is, does the state that I'm working in and getting divorced in have any rules around personal goodwill and company goodwill or enterprise goodwill? Um, and what does that mean in my divorce? You know, so those are, those are all big topics that it's case, it's state specific. Um, but yeah, I think we've, I've fought a lot of different battles in court. Um, and some of it is around the value of that main owner, you know, how much income is coming off of that business that actually supports the family, you know, and how much is going extra into the value of the business. So you're always, you know, and that's another concept that we call the double dip. Um, you know, so there's a lot of these things that if you are a business owner and you are getting divorced, that you actually do need to be aware of um, because you can't. And I hate to say this because I know, Miles, you are very smart in this space, but you can't just trust that your attorney knows all the nuances of business valuation. And and even as an expert. I fall into that, you know, I'm like, well, you guys do this all the time. You, you guys know. And they're like, no, we don't. <laughs> right. And what I wanted to share with your audience is, is what I want to do when I'm cross-examining a business valuation expert or taking that deposition, I want to put them on ground that I'm comfortable in. Okay. How do I do that? Number one, I love talking standard of value. Okay. Because general economic and business understanding isn't proprietary to CPAs and business valuation experts, okay? Mm -hmm. Second, I love strategic purchases as a defense to a big number, okay? I just love, I just, I go, the night before trial, I'm just, I got to go back and reread Shannon Pratt on strategic purposes, but I'm like, ooh, yeah, I can't wait. I'm glad to talk about that because there's not that much written because it's just a check mark of you can't include it. Now, if they say that there's something, I would be shocked if you could go out and find me some state law specifically discussing strategic the the need to eliminate strategic per, uh, purchases from the consideration, which obviously you can't get into with comps. Okay, so that's a another good value place for me to bring the topic to me. The double dip. I mean, here here's something stupid. I love asking just randomly 
in the middle of a cross-examination of an opposing expert or thrown it in intelligently if I can get away with it, which often I don't. It's just, well, isn't that a double dip? Didn't you just admit a double dip, Mr. or Mrs. Expert? And then you can see their eyes go, what? You know, you, it's somewhat of a non sequitur, but you could argue that anything's a double dip. And the reason is because life isn't neat and clean, especially in the minds of a judge, unless they uh, have an MBA from Wharton. Assets, debts, owner's equity, income, expense, profit. You know, the, the, for a CPA, they're, they're completely separate. Well, in a divorce, they're really not because I got four ways to get cash for the non-business owner spouse. I got property division, I got alimony, I got child support, and I got attorney's fees. All right. So if I can pull cash out, if I can pull out enough cash, almost I don't care where it comes from. All right. So just because in the more money that a spouse gets for the business valuation, arguably there's less need for long-term support. So my job as a lawyer is to, while on one side is to avoid the double dip, the other side is to grab as much of a double scoop of 31 flavors as I can get. So all these are great issues. And what I want your business valuation experts to know is the better they are able to handle these type of esoteric problems. And the other thing I would say is, do you want a battle over standard of value? Because most judges I know aren't big fans because they don't have anything in Tennessee law to help them on that. And so you end up into an economic discussion with an expert on the other side, essentially trying to take as much strategic value as possible embedded in the valuation. So I know that's a long rambling uh, answer to a very simple problem, but the, but the key to wrap it up here is where can a lawyer play and argue with a valuation expert? Last thing I want to do is get into a battle over discount rate. I just don't. All right. <laughs> but that's a great place to go have a battle. But that's going to be between the experts, not with me. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Well, and you and you've talked about standard of value and some other um, issues, and, and we might go a little bit more into detail of those. But what do you think divorce attorneys just don't get about business valuations? Like you said, you don't want to talk about the discount rate. And, and I would say just for, to start it off, I think any time you are in front of a judge and you are going down a pathway of a very uh, minute valuation theory and, and the only difference in the two experts is very convoluted esoteric theory, you're going to lose everybody involved, right? Nobody's going to understand the nuances of that discussion, but are there any areas that you think traditionally divorce lawyers just don't understand about business valuation? And again, we're talking about the vast majority. All right? Yes, For not you. But the no, well, there are plenty of lawyers that I know through the ABA and in 
Tennessee that are very, very competent in business valuations. So we're, we're not talking about the top-tiered folks that are very comfortable in that environment. All right. So the first thing that I think lawyers don't get is they don't understand the concept of drivers. Mm. Okay. A driver is very a very simple concept in that every business, if it exists for longer than four or five years, has some driver. Okay. If you're a... Uh, if you sell muffins, I love muffins. My wife won't make me muffins. I'm very upset over that. I have 30 years of marriage. I've only had muffins like two times a month. Why can't I have muffins every week? Right. I work hard. All right. Well, muffins and the, um, no, cupcakes. Yeah, everybody's in the cupcakes. Same thing. So if you make that, your driver is going to be advertising through social media in 2020. That's your driver, okay? Maybe you got a spot on uh, Bakeries or Us on the Food Channel or something, and you're milking that for every ounce that you can get it. There are drivers to every business. For the personal entry attorneys, it's one thing, advertising, okay? That's it. You can be the nicest guy and network all you want, but the end of the day, who's spending the most on advertising. All right. So once you get into a business valuation, the attorney on each side has to know what is the driver for this particular business. All right. Next, and that folds into your goodwill argument. And I was kind of joking with you about goodwill. If you want to get into it, we can. And there's a couple of concepts there you may want to flag and come back. Oh, yeah. Lawyers don't understand is that CPAs have and business valuation experts have very specific definitions for words that don't necessarily match with state case law, all right? So you could have a state appellate series of appellate opinions using the phrase professional goodwill, and what the Court of Appeals in Missouri may think that word means has nothing to do with what's in Shannon Pratt's books. Because why? Because the appellate judges have, you know, they should be listening to us CPAs and have us tell them exactly what to write down, but they don't do that. All right. Uh, the other thing is attorneys don't, are not going to understand the ins and outs of technical issues. Actually, I think that could be quite positive. And divorce lawyers are going to like, why would that be positive? Because you want your expert fighting the other expert on the technical issues. Fine. Unless, of course, your expert is going to get drilled by a much beefier expert who's better in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. All right. Then you're just doing the best you can with what you got. Okay. Because there's nothing, nothing worse feeling is when you've got a, a C-list business valuation expert on the stand and uh, that would that BV expert was chosen by your client and not by the lawyer. Mm -hmm. All right. And then just getting drilled and saying, I, I told you we should have hired the guy that was 10 times more expensive because I would have saved you $500,000. All right. Now, so then when you're talking about the difference between two reports, what is the core difference that matters? Now, 
I think you could in most business valuation reports where, where the parties aren't terribly apart. I'm not talking about where it's 1 million versus 12 million. I'm talking about 1 million versus 3 million. I wouldn't even consider that terribly far apart. Okay. In terms of, uh, materiality, what's, what are the drivers? What are the main things that causes those differences? And it may only be three items. It could be discount rate, some comps, something else, who knows? But the point is lawyers sometimes struggle with understanding that the core concepts aren't that complex. And then, uh, so that, that is what I see most business valuation engagements falling down on. And the trouble is, I this is going to sound weird. I really enjoy business valuation disputes with other lawyers who understand business valuation because we could talk. I get somebody who this is their first or second case on it. I got to, I want to, force them to go to some lectures from, from some business valuation experts and say, Hey, uh, no. And yeah. even if, even if we got one at, let's say 2 million and the other one at 3 million, why it might sense might make sense for both parties to just split the difference because everybody, again, there's a misunderstanding of the preciseness just because we're taking it down to one number a $2.5 million valuation when the experts are at two and three may not make a bunch of a difference depending on cash flow. Okay. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. So that's, that's a, again, a classic Miles Mason rambling answer to what otherwise should be a simple question. <laughs> well, I think it, it, presents a bunch of good information, though, because I think that, you know, I've given presentations before that there are a handful of things that you need to understand about a business valuation, that the income approach is about risk and cash flow. You know, what is the cash flow that's happened in the past? What's the future cash flow? And what's the risk that cash flow is going to continue? Um, and then it's understanding the nuances of how to describe something in a little bit easier way. Um, I think that, you know, most of the time, I'm not as an expert there to, ed you know, so I get deposed by an attorney that may not understand the nuances of valuation. I really can't sit there and educate them. Like I can't even, you know, like I can just sit there and be like that, was not the question you wanted to ask, because I know that you got your terms mixed up, but I'm going to have to answer that question. And so a lot of times I think that attorneys really, attorneys have a harder time saying that they don't know something, right? And so that, because they don't want to admit to anybody that they don't know it. And so then it, you know, whereas I flip around and I say, you know, I'm the expert. I'm, I know that you are really smart, Miles, but here's how I've done it in the past. And I just say, okay, here's all the things we need to be mindful of, knowing that there's going to be maybe one or two things out of the 10 that you are like, oh, I didn't think about that, right? 
Um, but it also no, that, pre- that that's nine out of ten things. Nine out of ten. I promise. <laughs> I don't I, I don't think so. I think people understand parts of it. It's just the nuances. And if you don't understand the drivers, if you don't understand how something is making money, how do you know how to value it? Is is one of the exactly. problems. And yeah. I think it's a good place to go in your attack against a business valuation expert, which I've settled some large cases because my opposing at deposition, I'll try to nail down the opposing expert. We just did this valuation. What's the driver? And they can't answer the question. How does the phone ring for this business to work? And uh, so that's a, I got I got three other things just to throw out that if you wanted to go into. Number one, uh, divorce lawyers don't understand reporting standards from the AICPA. Uh, in my book, this is a uh, not so subtle plug for my book, uh, Forensic Accounting Desk Book. I go into the weeds about reporting standards. Uh, lawyers don't know what USPAP is and AICPA record keeping requirements. Great ground for deposition questions after you've issued a subpoena. Do just take them for the expert to bring their file and all the notes and uh, information in there. And I cover that, but also document and just good old fashioned document retention. Most business valuation experts, if you got them at the, on the stand are taught just to say, well, I follow use PAP and ASCPA requirements, but you get them under some details about that. How long do you keep documents? When, how do you decide what to toss before depot? All right. What did you read but didn't use in your valuation? Okay. Especially when you've got your expert looking at two or three data points that they excluded for whatever reason. So I love to get business valuation experts off there, especially early on in the deposition and ask them, do you have a document retention policy? They'll say yes. And they'll start rambling on about USPAP and AICPA, which AICPA says in the litigation environment, none of uh, the the standards apply because it's litigation. They just accepted all document retention and disclosure and report formatting, which is stupid. And most of the business valuation experts that are A-listers comply with it anyway, even though they know it's accepted out because they don't want to get drilled in a deposition or the courtroom for not following standards, even though it doesn't apply, which is weird, but that's a different topic. But no one has a document retention policy in writing. All right. Now, even if you got your one business valuation expert with an assistant, uh, I still would recommend having one. Item number one, comply with the ICPA standards. Number two, comply with USPAP. But three, have specific lines about what is retained and what is not to be thrown away. Okay. Because what one of the traps I want to get the expert into is that they cherry picked what information to bring to the deposition and into the courtroom, 
right? And without that document retention policy, I said, well, how do I know? How do I know what you've thrown away? I put the, I try to move the burden of proving the negative to the business valuation expert. Now, does that always work? No. Is it always helpful? No. But what if I got nothing else? <laughs> and that's what most business, most attorneys in the family law universe are pretty good at is if I got nothing else to argue, attack. And these are the areas that I can attack on. And your job as the business valuation expert is to know what the obvious attack is, plan for it. And the, the fun thing is all you need is one pager and say, yes, we have a document retention policy. It's written down. Do you want me to send it to you? Hmm. Yes, I do. Thank you. And it's not a complicated document retention policy. But it, it, unless it says, um, if it does say I keep what I relied upon, the implication I'm going to go after is you're the arbiter of what you relied upon, which means you're the arbiter of what document you keep. So it becomes a little bit of a vicious circle, but I like that circle if I got nothing else. Well, and I think from the expert side, you know, there's a lot of things that go into protecting myself from notes, um, getting into it from emails, getting into it. And mostly it's about being upfront with the clients from the beginning. Everything you send to me is, is discoverable. Everything that you send to me, you know, like, yes, there are protections in place that protect work product and things like that. But more often than not, I see attorneys subpoena the, uh, the emails that you had back and forth. And more often than not, these couples are getting divorced for the first time or maybe the second, but they're not really being careful, right? You know, that could have been what got them into this in the first place. But with the communications with me, as long as I kind of put a kibosh at the beginning and say, listen, there will be no communications with me. There will be no, oh, I wish this value were $5 million. That would work really well for me. Like I can't have any of that communication to be entered um, because regardless of whether, what if my number was already 5 million? And now I have this email sitting out here that's like, I wanted it to be 5 million and you made it 5 million and, right. and that's how it works. So I'm really upfront with everybody at the beginning that, you know, email communication is not going to happen. Um, but that same breath, we're documenting and keeping everything that would be subpoenaed. Now we've, we've ran into other experts that have on, you know, uh, deposition said that they did get rid of documents and they did destroy documents and had no problem saying that information, which I think is crazy, but, um, you know, they didn't think it was a big deal. And usually those people haven't really been doing a ton of work in this space or else I don't think they would make those type of errors, uh, of whether they're errors of judgment or not. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't, we are not advocates. You know, I think that that's one thing that clients don't quite understand is your attorney is going to fight for you no matter what. If you think the sky is purple, they are going to fight for you to make it purple. I'm going to come in and say, 
you know the sky's not purple, right? Like, I get that you guys want to fight that it's purple, but in, you understand that it's blue right now, you know? And so I'm really coming in a little bit differently as an expert and saying, here's what I believe is the truth or the most reasonable value, right? Um, but it doesn't always make everybody happy. So I think that those are some areas that, that you know, people just don't understand. Right. I think it's very interesting what you were talking about, especially with documenting client suggestions of the end result. They can't help it. Right. Yeah. And just so that you know, again, less than subtle plug for my book. And one of my uh, appendix, I have a sample set of deposition questions for forensic accountants and business valuation experts. And in that, I asked the same question 14 different ways. Did the client suggest a valuation amount at any point during the engagement? And then did the client's attorney suggest? And I, asked, I switch up words, but I keep asking the same question 14 different ways to get at that, especially if they haven't turned over their email yet. And that anytime I can get a downside for the other side to disclose something, that gives me leverage in the negotiation, whether I know it or not, <laughs> which is fun. Yeah. So. Well, and I write a lot of the deposition questions for the other mm -hmm. expert. I usually write part of my direct. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I'll write some of the ideas of cross-examination questions that I think we're going to get into um, because a lot of times, most of the time I'm, I just tell attorneys, you know, it could take you like 10 hours to do this and it might take me like an hour and a half or two or three, you know, like it's not going to take me as long because it's the same stuff. But part of the fun is kind of walking them down the path in the deposition when they're deposing the other expert is like, how do you walk them down to kind of hang themselves? Um, and there are areas in valuation that are subjective, but then there are other areas that are just like not approved, right? You know, um, a discount rate of 40% probably not going to happen unless you have some startup situation or something like that. So I think it's, it's helping. And then normally the attorneys that I work with will come in and kind of layer their questions on top of mine. Mm -hmm. um, I work for a lot of business owners and, you know, a lot of times in control men that have been doing this for a long time. And one of the initial conversations I have with them, either in person or via Zoom in this time frame, um, it, before they write me a check, before they sign anything to work with me, is I tell them up front, you will not decide what the value is. And they're like, but but I know, but I know that I know what it's worth. I can tell you right now. Okay. There are experts that you could work with that will work with you like that. And you can tell them what price you want and they'll go and do it. I said, but the moment you think you're in control of this situation and we fail, which means I present a value that is not defendable. Okay. Cause I can't make you succeed. I can't win or lose a case. I'm just coming in to provide a defendable valuation. But at the point that you interject yourself into it and I listen to you 
and I fail because you don't, you think you know it more than I do, then we both fail. And so I usually have taken a proactive stance of, I'm going to tell you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not, that may, may, may get you to settle, right? But it's always going to be um, that I'm in control of that because I'm putting myself on the stand. I'm having to answer the questions. And if a question comes in, like, how the heck could you value this at $5 million, and I don't have the answer, you're going to look like an idiot, business owner. I'm sorry, but that's how it goes. So I, th I think that in this space, though, experts are kind of made and they can be told what to do, or you kind of create your own reputation that you can't be told how to do it. Um, and that's that's a big nuance with an expert. And I've told many young experts, you know, um, you can go and work for attorneys that will use you, um, but it'll be once. And once they know they can use you, they'll know that you could be used on the other side. You know, so this is, this is a long <laughs> view of what could happen. And I, I don't always just, and you know, I mean, I'm sure it's the same in Tennessee as it is in Missouri. Everybody talks. The attorneys know each other. The experts know each other. We all know each other's work and you, you gain a reputation based on what you do or don't do. Um, but anytime a business owner thinks that they're going to come in and create the value, the, the interesting nuance, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this because it'll, it'll have to do with a lot of these concepts, but I can see the story from the financials before a word is spoken. And so then I have to go on the stand, you know, so I can see if a business owner is doing things kind of when they decided they wanted to get divorced, right? Because I can see it. And I think that it's the same with if you look at like criminals who steal, like there's ways to steal. We can see those. We can see those paths. Um, and so you're not really necessarily getting away with much. But I think that we can talk a little bit about, you know, maybe what happens to the business during a divorce. What in the business owners, you know, so it's not just about tanking the business, right? It's about what do the financials tell the story that now you as a business owner are going to tell a conflicting story. And then the other side's going to make sure that everybody sees that those stories don't intertwine. So what have you seen kind of happening um, as business owners try to run their business during a divorce? Um, you know, another concept is what are the ways that they hide assets in a divorce? You know, because this is what we're seeing more often. Business owners don't think that everybody can see it, um, but we can. And that's the hard, and, a, and a sophisticated judge can also see it. And I think that's where, um, you know, no one's no one's getting tricked in this process. But what do you see some common ways that they kind of hide assets in the divorce or how they operate the business. Right. So uh, you touched on several great points. First of all, uh, what I try to explain to clients, one of the main values of hiring a, a forensic accountant is they can perform a, what's called a smell test. All right. 
And I explained to him that we've seen, as CPAs, we've seen so many balance sheets, income statements, tax returns, that it's not that complicated of a process to start out with a smell test, which I call a technique underneath the umbrella of methodology, okay? And we could talk more if you want to get into technical definitions of that. But simply just spreading out number of years of balance sheets, income statements, and tax returns to cross-reference. And what there is in a divorce is some magic moment. If we're going to find somebody hiding assets or manipulating financials, there's going to be a point in time when the target, the business owner in the business, begin the process of planning. Now, that beginning of the process of planning for divorce can be as much as a decade in advance. We ain't catching that, okay? They're just too good. There are some people out there that are very sophisticated, not that I've ever represented them. Right, of course. All right. Now, but that magic moment where the business owner knows that a divorce is coming or suspects it is going to begin changing decisions about asset acquisition, capitalization, other things. And CPAs are great at that, but it's helpful to know from the client, when did things start going south? When did she suspect the relationship with the, with the uh, uh, secretary, whatever, right? right? Now, what we see in a divorce often is, uh, uh, I didn't coin this phrase, but I use it in my book, sudden income deficit syndrome also known as SID. So once the divorce is coming, income is always going to drop, right? And it's so common that when my I represent clients where the income's going up, they're like, oh, <laughs> we don't want that. We don't want. So, uh, yeah, so sudden income deficit syndrome is something to expect and tell the client, eh, it's all right if you're representing the non-business owner. All right, let's talk about ways to hide assets. All right, so I spend a big chunk of my book talking about hiding assets and what are the most common ways. The number of ways of doing it is rather infinite, Okay. Uh, could be if I want to hide some assets, one of my favorite tools is going to be a trust because trusts pay their own taxes. All right. So none of those assets are going to show up on a tax return, either in, on a depreciation schedule or some other type of amortization that's going to result in a number uh, on a schedule. All right. Second, I'm going to try to bury non-operating assets in the business because they may not show up for years. And if we don't depreciate them, you know, you may not even get them off the tax return. And if we could get two, three years and only have to, in a divorce, give up three years of tax returns as opposed to five or six, and we started planning by putting non-operating assets in the, uh, in the business and just letting them sit there. Okay, that's a great way to do it if you have time. Uh, because if you think about it, and what I actually give pros and cons in my book <laughs> for different strategies, all right? So if you start manipulating receivables, that's a real easy place to go. 
So one of the things I did when I was an accountant is I worked for a hospital holding corporation. And the big number to adjust at the end of the year for management bonuses was uncollectible receivables. Okay, They could make adjustments at the end of the year so that the profitability would be exactly where they wanted it to be. All right. So uh, I like that as an area to look at. Uh, obviously, and Melissa, I'm assuming you've talked about this a million times on your podcast. And if you haven't, this would be a really good topic to cover with other forensic accountants is putting uh, the uh, extramarital affair person on the payroll, okay? Paying their health insurance, uh, maybe paying their rent, uh, car lease, other things as an outside salesperson, something like that. So the fictitious employee is a big one. Uh, usually your, your bookkeeper in the firm may be a great uh, uh, deep throat to have uh, on your side. Or maybe if there's one person within the business owner's business that has to know and must know about hiding assets, depose them, make them commit perjury, as part of the process, right? There's, there's love and then there's perjury. So somebody can love the business owner. And I don't mean that in a romantic sense necessarily, but somebody has to know because if, it, if we're talking about a real business, it's usually too big for the business owner to just take enough cash off book because, okay, let's say you do get paid in cash, right? Where are you going to put it? Do you have it in the safe at the house where the wife can say, yeah, I saw him put $100,000 in that safe and there's no cash at the time of the divorce. And I saw it as recently as four months ago. Judges will listen to that. Okay. But if you need to park real money, like quarter of a million dollars to $2 million in cash, they're going to need and want to get it offshore. All right. And there's a finite number of ways to get it offshore. One is physically take it, all right? There's a lot of people that watch Miami Vice in the 1980s. <laughs> you know, let's get on a boat and go to the Caribbean, all right? But do you really want to be carrying around a bag of a quarter of a million dollars of cash? Right. Most people don't. The other thing is uh, most people are going to have a stash of cash but the question, what I always tell my clients is, I don't know, we, we want to look for a safety deposit box two states over with $25,000 in cash in it. Juice probably ain't worth the squeeze. And they say, yeah, that's probably what he's got. He's probably got some walking around money that he can use or she can use at a casino or Vegas or something like that. So the, the way to hide assets is limitless. And one of the more subtle ways that I do find fascinating, and I think a lot of lawyers are going to miss this, is overpaying federal income tax. Okay. And so you fill it out incorrectly on the joint return as far as how much was paid in, but only you know it's there. You tie it in with your social security number, and in future years, you either go back and uh, amend a return, because maybe after the separation, both parties 
do married, uh, married filing separate. And if a business owner is doing that, there's usually going to be a reason. Okay. But I love the idea. If I were going to hide assets and uh, why would I? I've only been married for 30 years and I'm pretty sure my wife has an account in Switzerland somewhere. <laughs> right. I just hope, I just hope it's a lot more money than I could possibly imagine. Uh, right. Good for her. Plus uh, she's the legal administrator of my law firm. So if she steals money, it's all, it's all marital property. So it's 50% off anyway. Right. But uh, if you're going to hide money uh, off a, of, tax issues, you can go back and file an amended return 18 months, two years later and put the correct number in there. And the IRS is going to look at it because it's an error in your favor. They're not going to, they're not going to worry with it. If as mm -hmm. long as you got the paperwork. Oh, mm -hmm. I sent that, uh, I found the check that went into the IRS or series of checks. And I just forgot to tell my CPA. Here's the canceled check. So the amended return is correct. Mm -hmm. And and I think that would be a, if you've got a business grossing couple of mil, that's a, that could be a really good way to hide. And then, of course, I'm a big fan of 3% here, 5% there, maybe 6% here, 4% there on different items on the balance sheet. Before you know it, you're talking real money. Mm-hmm. So cash is super easy, uh, but that's where you need two things. You need this forensic accountant to catch what changed and did it coincide with the uh, non-business owner's private investigator catching uh, the business owner having dinner at a fancy hotel in Vegas at the conference, okay, to where that shift is, or... Uh, better yet, uh, you can prove spending that's inappropriate for the amount of income, you know, the brand new luxury vehicle, the brand new condo where you're just spending crazy money as the business goes down and judges mm -hmm. will really listen to that. Mm -hmm. okay? And those are the simple ways to, to catch the most common ways of hiding assets. Well, and I think that most of the time, the person that's not in the business is always hyper mistrustful of the person that's in the business. So everything looks suspicious. And unfortunately, even simple things like, you know, most people look at the tax returns. Most people look at the business tax returns. They look at their personal tax returns. Um, distributions from other entities that maybe the people own do not hit the tax return. And so distributions would be on a K-1 and you could have that number there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that income was collected or, or put as a line item on the tax return. So to me, you know, because I'll have a lot of clients that are like, you know, we've been living this great life. How do we have nothing? Well, in some cases, you've been living a great life because you financed it through debt. But then in other cases, it's just that there was this other money coming in from distributions. It just doesn't look like it on the tax return. 
Um, and so one of the things that we'll look at is say, okay, well, why don't you get the last? And usually I want it to coincide with a tax return. So right now we may have 2019 tax returns. Let's get 12 months of personal bank statements. Let's get 12 months of business bank statements. And then let's just look at them and say, do these all add up? Are we seeing where the cash is coming from? Are we seeing where the cash is going? Because sometimes we do, you know, there is a trail that there was 200,000 in this bank account and now there's nothing. Okay, well, when did it leave? And then what we do is we try to kind of layer those accounts by time. So in this time frame, you had all of these different accounts with amounts, but we had a total of 500,000. And now everything got moved around. And now at the end of that year, we still have the 500,000. It's just a different makeup. Or we have 200,000 left. What happened to the 300,000? You know, so sometimes it's identifying that there is or is not a problem at the beginning and then saying, okay, we see that there is a problem. There was more money here and now it's lower. Um, so what happened to it? Did you just spend it? Because a lot of times people don't necessarily know how much they're spending. And so there's so much mistrust and they're like, well, I need a forensic accountant or, you know, like you can even get a CDFA right now. So a certified divorce financial analyst. I need somebody. I need a lifestyle analysis, like all of these things. But the reality is you have to take it slower. First, you can't just go down every rabbit hole because a client thinks that something was lost or stolen or my husband's a thief or my wife's a thief, you know, because some things don't always look as they seem. So you do have to go look and, and we just try to take it in stages and say, okay, let's first see if there's a problem and then let's see what is the best use of our time? Like you said before, you know, are we missing a hundred thousand over here and 500 over here? Well, let's go after the 500 first before we even worry about the 100. Um, and then there's also tactics that valuation people can use and experts can use to try to get it to settle. You know, we had a situation, um, once where there were a lot of high dollar items and I can't say exactly what they are. I would give it away, but let's, let's, let's call it diamonds. We'll go with that one. So we had some diamonds and some emeralds and maybe it's a diamond distributor. Okay. But what happened is that, and this won't totally work with what I'm doing, but each of the diamonds had a code. And so we could see that some of the codes came in, but they never left but they were gone, right? They were never sold, but they were gone. They were missing. And so we provided, an, and this was a massive company, we provided an inventory list of 40 items that were missing in, the, in one given year, right? And it settled the following week because we had identified, you know, so a lot of times it's working smarter not harder. It's if you can identify, and this goes kind of way back to your value driver, but in a case, what is driving the value of that marriage? And what is the most bang for your buck? And how can we, in some capacity, as an expert, I'm always working to try to settle it, you know, to try to get you enough information that you can settle it because it does get sticky, you know, and you're paying two experts and they're fighting about every single thing. Well, if you can find some information 
um, it might help get it settled because you've identified that, yes, those diamonds existed and yes, they were they went somewhere else. But what the bigger issue is that we had identified was that the person was trading the diamonds for other assets. And so we were able to identify that, the, yes, those other assets didn't show up, but the diamonds and the missing inventory numbers allowed us to understand that there were assets somewhere else we just didn't have. So it allowed us to settle. And in some cases, the, you know, another issue that we could talk about is that, um, you know, sometimes you don't need to know everything to be okay with a settlement. And there are times, you know, I've, I've had clients that have said, I will ignore $60 million worth of value in, in some crazy business or some, you know, crazy outlandish things that's happening because they had enough to survive or they had enough that they thought was fair. Um, because again, sometimes we're trying to get to equitable distribution, right? We're getting to something that is reasonable. I like reasonable better than fair because that's just my thing because nobody's ever going to say it's fair, but is it reasonable and is it enough to provide for you so that you have to do you have to fight for everything um but that you know i think i think that those are some other issues that people you know people think i mistrust my spouse so i need to turn over every stone and that will cost you sometimes more than what the stone is worth and so you really have to be more um conscious i think of where the value is and how do you get it? Because going back to our first conversation, our first point is that, you know, how even with this balance, marital balance sheet or, you know, what happens to the business during the divorce, the reality is somebody might keep the business and somebody might keep the house. Are those equal? Maybe or maybe not. Is one going to continue to make money and the other one not? Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of things that it does it feel good to have a house that you live in and you don't have to pay for it? Yes. But is that the same value as a business and an operating business or something that's going to create more money for you? You know, those are I think that if you're getting divorced, you have to surround yourself with a team of people that understand it deeper than just numbers on a balance sheet, basically. I agree. <laughs> and we're done. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, the one of the things that I thought we would share one more, um, one more topic, and then I think we'll get into like what you do and your book. I definitely want to to talk about your book. But if you, a lot of people I think are in this situation, and I've seen a lot of ways to protect this, but how do you protect a family business from divorce? Because I think we have a lot of clients that are in this situation. Whew. All right. So first step is getting a state planner involved. Uh, obviously, post-nuptial agreements, prenuptial agreements. But estate planners might have some creative ways to, to uh, uh, cut corners. Uh, well, I wouldn't say cut corners. I would say cut crust off of bread. Okay. Do we place the family business in a trust? And then if so, who's the trustee? Is it the business owner? 
not always a good idea to have the business owner as a trustee of the trust that they own because the claim can be there is access it. Yeah, they can access it. They can control it. And it's a sham transaction. All right. So you always have to be worried about, uh, you know, a transaction being uh, considered by a court to be fraudulent. So a fraudulent conveyance is something all divorce lawyers should understand and keep in their arsenal. Now, uh, there's tax planning that you want that in, uh, to fold that into, because generally your tax planning and your divorce planning are going to go hand in glove. All right. Now, keep in mind a business owner is most likely to have to produce uh, financial statements given to credit facilities. Right? So one of the things I call the holy grail of documents in a divorce is I'm going to go look to see if the business has uh, open credit, open lines of credit, or have borrowed money based on inventory. If they have, then there's usually going to be some sort of filing in the registrar's office with a business entity that the title of the name of the company, not the DBA, but the name of the company with their secretary of state is uh, uh, reachable through public records. So if I get a um, what's called a UCC-1, and if you're a divorce lawyer, you need to know what a UCC-1 is. And that is a document filed with the registrar's office in your county that tells the world that the credit facility, which could be a bank or some other form of lender, has superior rights to assets owned by the business, right? And uh, those are great to have. So if you get the holy grail, these financial statements, but if you want to protect your family business from divorce, you want to have very realistic values on those financial statements that can be discoverable at a bank by your spouse's crafty divorce lawyer and their subpoena power. Okay. So uh, in terms of protecting the bit, Oh, the other thing is buy sell agreements. Okay. And people screw this up all the time. Almost every state says, if you want to buy sell agreement between two people, to protect, and one of the main reasons is obviously protect a business in the event of a divorce. If there's an automatic trigger, the only way it's enforceable as against the spouse is that if the spouse signs it. But if you're doing it at the same time as your estate planning, some tax planning, and uh, life insurance, okay. I love life insurance, especially premiums purchased by the business. You can say, dear, mm -hmm. I'm doing my, we're doing our estate planning. The business is paying for a one to $10 million life insurance policy. So if I die tomorrow, Tom can take over the business and write you a nice check. But Tom says the business is worth X. I say the business is worth X. And we need you to sign here. Do you want to take it to a lawyer or something? Like, no, I trust you. 
But that never happens. Right. And, and spouses rarely sign the buy sell agreement. All right. And if you uh, have you had a chance to to meet Chris Mercer out of Memphis yeah. before? Okay. Well, Chris has written several books on buy sell agreements. Okay. And uh, by the way, in case you didn't know, he's a very very nice man, and would uh, would would definitely be somebody good to call on and just talk buy sell. Okay. So the buy sell agreement is a very common stop. Uh, not a terrible stop, but just know you got to get the other spouse's signature on it. Okay. And you might want to give them a big wad of cash as a thank you for signing it because they're going to think, well, I'm just getting taken to the cleaners as part of this process. Well, if you hand them 50,000 in cash and say, this is your separate property for signing this document and it's tax planning, one of the, you know, whatever. But there, and so the question is how creative do you want to get? How aggressive do you want to get? Do you want to keep it where all the documents look and smell right to a forensic accountant or an opposing divorce lawyer? Or you don't care and you're a bull in the china shop and are going to do A through Z regardless of the consequences and park half a million dollars in cash down in uh, Aruba, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so really there's a lot of options available to hiding cash and a lot of options out there in terms of doing tax planning and asset protection. And so what I always tell my clients and try to explain when I speak in public, you've got, on one hand, you got uh, tax planning and asset protection. On the other hand, you got uh, uh, fraudulent conveyances to uh, protect assets in the event of divorce. And it just depends on which side of the coin you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because the same transactions can perform more than one function at any given point in time. And the reality is a lot of family businesses, if you look at uh, high net worth families, right, that have kind of either had businesses that go through the generations or have been gifted in some capacity to other generations, their estate planners are and and um, estate attorneys, estate planning attorneys, basically are on point because they their whole thing is really to protect all of the generations from kind of diluting the wealth to divorce. So I even had a couple that, you know, I think the wife wanted the multi-million dollar house and it was a bad day when we went in and said, so the family trust owns the house and you guys don't. And not even the husband owns a house. And she was sort of like, what? How did that work? You know, so there's a lot of ways that I think somebody, but a lot of it's pre-planning. It's planning before you got married. It's planning, you know, generational skipping trust and, and other types of sophisticated programs that it's not on the eve of filing divorce that you can typically just create these things to happen. Right. I think an important concept to overlay, whether whether you're the uh, representing an obligor or the obligee on alimony, 
the less assets they're going to get, the greater the claim for alimony, mm-hmm. which unless you do a post-nup or a prenup is usually going to be a significant number. So it's all, as I like to say, it's all cash, cash, cash. Mm-hmm. You know? So be careful what you ask for if you don't have assets to give away. And if you're talking about an ultra wealthy or we're talking about liquid assets in Excel in excess of 30 million, well, the dollar amount that a reasonable person needs to have a comfortable lifestyle without the support of the other party begins at 3.5 million. Mm-hmm. And so what I see, and we can talk about that later, but what I see is on the, the larger estates, there is no alimony because of the asset buyout. Okay. Because there's not going to be any need unless they have some kind of extravagant lifestyle and uh, explain to a judge that they need access to the net jets to go to New York to shop every two months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good luck with that. Right. Right. Well, and I think that it's a lot, you know, a lot of times the spouses just listen to what the other spouse says. So if they say, oh, you know, I was given this business by my father. I was, you know, this existed before we were even married. You know, all of these things. The reality is you have to talk to somebody and 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 kind of start to break apart the layers. You know, was it truly gifted? Was it truly separate to begin with, even if you have separate assets, were they, did they remain separate? Were they commingled? Were they, you know, convoluted into something else? And then what's the process of figuring that out? And then you have to layer on that it's different in each state. So it doesn't mean just because, you know, and, and, and in some cases you have people that have multiple residences, So what state is going to be the best state to file in? You know, do you have that capability of choosing or does it have to be where your main residence, you know, so all of these things I think are, are nuances, but most of the time one spouse is listening to what the other spouse says. And I got to be honest, I've never met a business owner that doesn't think that their business is worth more than it is worth, you know, so they've spent two decades telling the spouse, Oh, my gosh, we're so popular, we're so famous, you know, we're so successful, we're making all this and next year's going to be better and better and better. And then they get divorced. And they're like, it's all going to hell. You know, the problem is that sometimes it was probably going to hell during a lot of that period anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, and but as the business owner, you're just hyping yourself up and hyping the business up. And so some of that mistrust is kind of not necessarily founded in logic, you know, so this process is really difficult. The only way, and that's why I think I have a lot of clients that come in and say, I want you to do all of this analysis. And we say, okay, but is that going to move the needle? You know, is that going to get you to where you need to be? And really, most of the time, the attorney and the expert need to figure out the couple best ways to get to the end result um, because not all of them are going to be helpful. So, but it's not always too easy to protect. And, and we have a whole bunch of other topics. We might just have to do another podcast at some point, but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you think would be beneficial for people to understand? Well, I would never underestimate 
the ability of a forensic accountant and business valuation expert to smell problems. Okay. Part of what clients don't understand that they're paying for is a tremendous amount of professional experience and expertise and judgment. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't need to tell a business valuation expert that knows what they're doing to double check uh, the tax returns and the, compare them to the financial statements to see if something pops out that looks wrong. I don't need them to, uh, I don't need to say out loud, at least I hope I don't, to look at uh, reimbursed business expenses from the owner and the people in the owner's inner circle. Okay. Because if I'm a business owner, I may go buy something an asset, not operating asset from my best salesperson during a divorce just to depress income and maybe use all the Section 179 depreciation that I can to just take it all in uh, as a deduction in the year the dollar was spent. So, yeah, there's just a lot of obvious places I think most forensic accountants and business valuation experts know to look. Travel and entertainment, conferences. Last five years, they've had a trade show in Las Vegas and they spent eight to 12,000 every year. And then we got one for 25,000. Well, somebody's getting a, a skybox at a strip club for 10 grand at a a nine or whatever it may be. That may be low. I don't know. I've never bought a skybox at a strip club in Las Vegas, but I know people who've been there. <laughs> I've had clients that, that when I met them for the first time, they're like, so is part of this confidential? Like, can I, can I have you sign a confidentiality agreement? I was like, Shh, okay. You know, like what's the deal? Well, so we have some expenses that are client related, but they may be a little bit, you know, on the uh, wrong side of reason. Oh, okay. No, that I just tell them, don't talk to me about those types of things. But well, yeah. that's part of doing business a lot of yeah. times, especially in the construction industry. Okay. So uh, that doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it questionable. Mm -hmm. All right. So where I'm going with that is I think there, it is our job as the professionals to explain what we're supposed to find. Okay. What we're looking for, when you say we're not going to do everything, flip that and say, here's what we are going to do. Mm -hmm. We're going to compare and contrast financial statements from the business, from the tax, the tax return statements, and the, uh, the, the financial statements that were provided to the lending facility to see if they all come together. And a, and a credit facility that's got a long-term relationship with the business isn't going to freak out if the business claims $500,000 worth of income on a tax return and $2 million on a financial statement. They're just not because they've got a long history and they understand the complex nature of tax returns versus real income. So uh, I think it's a it's a majestic exercise is what I like to tell people that mm -hmm. what we do is part art, part science. 
and they have to hire somebody that they trust on the science before we get to the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that you can reach out to most experts and they'll do kind of, you know, you called it a certain thing. We kind of call it like a quick and dirty or a look, see, like look and see what we need to do or if there's value here or not value. Cause sometimes things look like they're not worth much, but there's some, some area, you know, like just the section 179 depreciation that you're talking about that can make a business look like it's making nothing Mm -hmm. very easily. And so you kind of have to dissect it and get a little bit deeper to see if you actually have any issues there or not. And then how do you go forth from that position? And, and we're constantly trying to get to a settlement, not because we don't like litigation, because we actually do like litigation, um, but because it's in the best interest of the parties, because at some point, you're going to just have two experts fighting in front of the judge and not even, I mean, we don't really fight. We just present our positions and they're different and the judge has to decide, but the judge a lot of times could split the baby and just average them and say, I'm just going to go in the middle. Well, isn't that something you could do in negotiating a settlement and say, Hey, you're over here at 3 million. I'm over here at 1 million. How does 2 million sound? And they, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, we're just playing around with money and averages and going in the middle, but that's what could happen in court. And so we're just kind of, you know, trying to, to, to cut to the chase. But I think if you're millions of dollars apart, you know, is one of the positions being contrived or not? And that's where I think it, it really is in the best interest of the attorney's to understand more about business valuations because you could be kind of tricked by the valuation person, you know, like we, we know what you don't know and what you do know, but that presents us to a good point about your book and kind of some of your background. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about your background and about this book, because I actually think this book would be really helpful to attorneys and valuation people and experts, because you need to see a bunch of different perspectives. Well, thank you. Uh, So my book is called The Forensic Accounting Desk Book. And with your permission, maybe you could put a link. Yes, we we are. Uh, It's currently in its second edition. It is sold by the American Bar Association Family Law Section. So somewhere... Circa 2008, a friend of mine uh, that was on the publications board of the ABA family law section uh, said, hey, I want to buy you a whiskey. Sounds good. So we go have a whiskey. Then we get on the second whiskey, and she lowers the boom on me. We want you to write a book. I'm like, uh, What? And they said, well, you know about forensic accounting and business valuation. You're a CPA. I'm like, yeah. We want you to write a, the book for the ABA family law section on forensic accounting and to some extent business valuation. Okay. And it 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 bothered me that what I was about to do would be lose almost two years of my life. Okay. And I said, do you know what you're asking? 
Yeah, we do. And then the only reason I did it is because it would piss me off if somebody else wrote it. Right. All right. So I uh, said yes. Uh, one, of, one of many interesting decisions I've made under the influence of alcohol. Okay. That has impacted my life. I won't give you a list, but I have a list of order importance and alphabetical order of questionable judgment of exercise <laughs> under the influence of alcohol. So I had a pretty good place. I'd been teaching business valuation and forensic accounting for about 10 years. I'd been working with NACFA. I'd been working with ASCPA. I was the, uh, uh, liaison between the AICPA uh, Forensic and Valuation Services Group and ABA Family Law Section. And uh, so I felt like I had a good handle on it. And I also know what forensic accountants don't know about lawyers and vice versa from having taught both. And I what I routinely do is ask them questions while I'm giving seminars. Okay. So I know that AICPA, forensic accountants, don't know about the different ethical requirements. They can't list them as far as requirements for independence. Okay, they don't know. They just know if it's an audit client, you can't do a forensic accounting report. Okay, whatever. But I can ask them specific questions about their own ethics, and they won't know the answers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from... NACFA conferences and AICPA conferences. All right. So um, I pulled all my stuff together, uh, bought a bunch of cigars, and uh, went to type it. Okay. And really just started out, uh, you know, blank thing, chapter one. Uh, what do forensic accountants do? And I had fun with it. Uh, I do occasionally find a CPA who reads it and finds it remotely humorous and calls me up or emails me. Like I say, uh, CPAs are in love with spreadsheets. There's, there's a romantic relationship there that is uh, also bordering on the spiritual. Uh, forensic accountants and business valuation experts like to tell the public and, uh, and their friends in private that they don't have typical boring CPA personalities, but they do. <laughs> okay. So, and I know that because I'm the son of a CPA. I'm the brother of two CPAs and I'm a CPA. So I've been around forensic, the forensic accountants think I'm crazy. <laughs> the divorce lawyers think I'm the most conservative, boring person they've ever met. So I have no home, which is All fine. Right. Uh, Stephen Wright said, uh, I live in my own little world, but that's okay. Cause they know me there. Right. All right. So I had fun with it and what it was, it, it was an endeavor to be a translator. Okay. What could I tell both CPAs and lawyers that would add value? Where were the dark corners of the forensic, forensic accounting universe? All right. That's a great place for cross-examination. And so I did things like I went to uh, an NACVA conference teaching forensic accountants how to deal with cross-examination. And I spent a whole week there doing one thing, the chapter that I wrote on 
deposition questions, your deposition question checklist. I worked on it for a week and flew to now I do love Orlando, but it was like Orlando in August. I don't know why they had in Orlando in August, but they would, it was a hot, 1030 at night. I'm out trying to smoke a cigar, walking around and I'm just dripping in wet sweat. And I was like, I don't think I ever want to move to Orlando. Right. All right. So, a lot of effort went into it. And then uh, they came back around a couple of years ago and said, we want you to update it. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I said, well, you have to. I said, I don't have to do anything with America. <laughs> Is it America? I thought it was America. And they said, no, we want you to do it. So I went and added some stuff and added like, I didn't think I would have that much, but I ended up adding like 150 pages to it. A lot of wow. cases case law summaries to give forensic accountants and lawyers an idea of what is out there in appellate opinion. So I went and especially looked at all appellate opinions that had come out of the previous 10 years that since I'd written the book and updated it, that had anything of interest. If it was just a boring case and had a forensic accountant, and I'm not going to do that. But if we had a battle between two forensic accountants or some noteworthy, I put it in the book. So that was, I thought that was kind of a nice value added. Now the book is uh, one of the best selling books in the history of the ABA family law section. And for that, I'm very proud and grateful for the ABA doing it. And forensic accountants, Teachers, forensic accounting teachers around the country have used this as their textbook to teach forensic accounting because we go into methodology, we go into techniques, we go into what is the smell test, all right? We go into ratio analysis, we go into the technical aspects of what forensic accountants need to know and how to explain a methodology in the event they're on the stand, which most forensic accountants, unless you've been on the stand four or five, six times, it's damn near impossible to explain the methodology. Mm -hmm. what What does every forensic accountant do first? Financial statements compared to tax returns, compared to what was reported either uh, publicly or privately to a bank and see where the anomalies are. Then do it over time. Right. When was the magic moment when we found out about the girlfriend? Well, you can add 18 months on that because it's probably going on before that. Right. But that but that's a different story. So just starting out, smelling what's there, looking at it from a critical 10,000 foot view is step one of the methodology. Okay. Now, so we we wrote the book. And when I say we, one of the things I was very proud of was all the help I got from my friends. I did a little bit of a Tom Sawyer. There's a Missouri reference for you. Uh, You know, I've got to paint this fence, but I I called my buddies and said, hey, can I borrow this from you? Can I borrow that from you? Can you give me a quote on this? So a lot of the uh, uh, forensic accountants and lawyers cited on there, just friends from the ABA family law section, as well as some of the top forensic accountants that I know through ASCPA and NACBA. And because uh, what I would do in nine times out of 10, when I look at an article, let's say I need to write a topic on stock options. Okay. And I don't want to write a book on the ABA already 
well, I don't know if they had one at the time, but when I did my second edition, there was already a book on stock options. So as I see the book, but I ran across a great article from a forensic account in New Jersey, uh, called him up, said, Hey, <laughs> I'm going to be referencing this article. Can you give me a couple of quotes about stock options? He did. And so I feel like it was a group effort of a lot of nice people being very generous with some of their thoughts and, and material. And so I try to, I hope, and my goal was, it was everything a, a divorce lawyer or a forensic accountant might need to know about the technical aspects of forensic accounting and divorce. One of the chapters is how to write, how to create a marital balance sheet. What's the information you need? Mm-hmm. And one of the tests, uh, Melissa, next time, if you if you wanted to really throw a shot across the divorce lawyer's bow and say, okay, your client has, a, has an interest uh, with his or her spouse for a variable annuity, what documents do you need to review? All right, well, I wanted to put that in there. Mm-hmm. So I got to call CDFAs. I got to talk to some, some, uh, <laughs> you know, because I'm not saying you know, there's a con- there's annuity contract, mm-hmm. right? What else do I need to know? Surrender penalties, all right. So there's, I wanted it to be a checklist, a practice tool, a way that any lawyer uh, can't live without it. And so I know I've done a good job when I got to go back to my own book and I got subpoenas in there. I got, uh, um, I tried to make, it was really annoying. I had a a opposing counsel that's just a jerk, just a terrible human being as many divorce lawyers are. And we all know that, (laughs) but he issued a subpoena to an employer uh, of my client. And I liked, I like the subpoena. So I stole some of it and improved my subpoena. It was hard for me to, and, uh, and of course I never told the lawyer, thank you or gave him credit because I don't like, him. but the point is <laughs> forms, practice procedures can all get better with time. Right. Right. And so I really enjoyed that process of trying to make it better uh, for the second go around. It sold really, really well. I'm excited about it. And it really contains, like like we were talking about earlier, give it away. Yeah. All right. Well, and it just came out this year, or is it is it coming? Because you have the updated version now, right? Yeah, second edition is out through the ABA yeah. and available from the ABA family law section. It will be for sale on Amazon mid-2021. ABA likes to have their books exclusive for a while. And uh, And it's uh, not just for Tennessee. It's really talking about these divorce concepts for anybody around the country. And then you need to, you you need to make sure you know your own state. Right. But these are universal. Yeah. And I try to tell you where to go look in your state law, whether it be rules of evidence, rules of civil procedure, Generally, most states, almost all states, follow federal rules of evidence and federal rules of civil procedure when it comes to internal referencing. 
So your expert witness disclosure is going to be different in federal court than state court, but states have their own rules and, but they're not that different in order to lose any sleepover. Like there is a difference between whether draft reports are discoverable Mm -hmm. at the federal level. The answer is no. In most state levels, the answer may be yes. The question is, does a draft report really help you out? Answers maybe. Who knows? So you definitely want to ask for them and try to get them, even if the other side doesn't know how to bury them. Oops, did I say that out loud? I didn't mean to. You know, uh, so. uh, Now, do you think the book would be okay for people who are just getting started in this area, too? Or do you kind of, is it more for a seasoned person? It's for both. I gave what I what I tried to do is, you know, think of if it's a knee, uh, you've got muscle, which is the law bone, which is forensic accounting because the numbers, and we're talking about numbers. What I wanted to do is give this book, uh, enough of the connective tissue to bring it all together. So I'm going to start simple. I even go into how to call a forensic accountant or a business valuation expert out to lunch. That's where I start. And so why you need to have a forensic accountant or business valuation expert on speed dial to do your job. Mm-hmm. Okay. You do not want to wait. You want to, we, we race several other divorce firms here in Memphis to get the expert our client wants. All right. Yeah. And to make sure that we're not losing out. Now, uh, so we do we take it to that level as well as specific deposition questions, teaching the lawyers and the forensic accountants what are the ethics behind the the special engagement that is forensic accounting or business valuation, and to teach them that there are rules and they're written down and where to go get them. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a great reference for anybody because, you know, a lot of times we're staying in the books just for valuation people. And I think you really have to understand where an attorney comes from and an attorney's perspective, because we're not really just working in our own world. We have to go then and communicate all of this information to the other world, which is the judges, the attorneys, the clients. I mean, a lot of times I'm trying to hold somebody's hand through this process because they've never dealt with anything financial related in their, in their marriage or in life, you know, so then to just, you haven't even kept a checkbook to then assume that you're going to understand the nuances of you know, separate or marital contribution or any of these terms is really a far stretch. So we have to, as experts, look at how other people perceive our knowledge and other people perceive how we communicate the issues. Because if you sit up there in court and say, well, assets and liabilities and equity, it's not going to get you anywhere because people, those terms don't resonate with people, you know, Instead of saying the things that you you possess, you know, you own, and then the debt that you got to pay for it. Well, people understand that. People understand I get a car and a car loan. Do you own the car yet? Nope. Do you have a car? Yep. What's the difference? That's the amount that you 
have really, right? And they're like, oh yeah, I get that. Well, part of that is understanding how other people perceive what you say. And I think that is another great reason to reach out and get this book. Um, we're going to list links of how to contact you as well as how to purchase this book. You said it was on the ABA website. I did see it on there. Um, I did see that Amazon is posting that it is available in 2021. So that's why I was asking. I was like, "Is it's out, right? Yeah. Um, so that makes more sense. But it's going to be a great resource. And um, if they have any other questions, and I think, you know, Miles, we should do like a regular thing. I think, you know, the this would be fun. The attorney's perspective and then like the rational perspective. No, just kidding. Just kidding. No, oh, I got you. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Well, thank you so much. It's been an amazing amount of information. And again, we'll give all the contact information to how to reach out to you. Um, I assume you take on new clients and people can call and email you. Um, you have a pretty, you, it's not just you, you have a bigger firm um, in Memphis, right? Yeah. And so you have several other attorneys working for you. Um, yeah. So, and any other specialties or is it just divorce? Family law and divorce. Family law. But mostly just divorce. There are items within family law that may make sense to work with other attorneys. And we'll be glad to steer people in that direction. Gotcha. But basically your focus is on um, family matters, divorce, custody, things like that. So yes, well, thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you again. My pleasure. All right. Thank you for having me.